Song number 772 has been announced, and we will use that later in the service this evening. How blessed we each have been to be able to gather together again on this Lord's Day, to do so recognizing that our thrust and motivation is far greater than we. It is to praise and to magnify the nature of the one who created us and the one who has heaven waiting for those faithful to Him. Tonight, as we come to this part of our service, we've already enjoyed our singing and our prayers, and certainly before the service, fellowship with each other. For the next few moments, what about reflecting on a lesson I've entitled, Posture in Prayer? You can see on the slide, as we give some thought to that, it really does indicate the very idea I would wish us to consider and what I think will be an interesting reflection upon at least certain parts of the Word of God. This opening slide will present the question, and it'll do so with an idea toward what we hope will be able to be answered by us. We each readily understand how powerful prayer is. We're so thankful for that avenue, and frequently here in our collective prayers, we thank God that He's our Father, and that His ears are open to our petitions and our supplications. And as thankful as we are for that, the Bible assures us of ideas like this. Philippians 4 verse 6 continues to say that you and I should with excitement come before His throne, not with anxiety and not with worry, but casting all of our concerns upon Him. Doing that very idea leads us to notice how frequently these issues are highlighted. Prayer is the means that you and I approach God. It is the means whereby we specifically lay our concerns and our cares upon Him. Aren't we told to lay your cares upon Him? Again, the understanding that His ears are open, 1 Peter 3.12. He speaks to us through the Bible. He conveys His will to us. He conveys His revelation to us. In so doing then, that prayer together with the Bible make a wonderful compliment one to the other. No wonder as you appreciate the bottom of that slide, Prayer is effective. We're promised it. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. All of that, though, begs the following question at the bottom. Does the Word of God have anything to say about appropriate postures which might be adopted in prayer or even in other aspects related to prayer? I raise that issue as well as many in our current age because it is a topic of some discussion and a topic in some cases of even some controversy. Maybe you and I know of individuals, other congregations, for example, which in the avenue of prayer, they do other things in addition to what we do. Have you ever seen instances in which individuals, perhaps without raised arms, sway back and forth in prayer? Is that acceptable? Does the Bible endorse that? That is to say, does the Word of God allow us to appreciate an authorization for that activity in conjunction with prayer? It is a good question. I hope tonight that not only can we answer that, but even other matters that relate to it by discussing the subject posture in prayer. The first one will be a familiar one, kneeling. I suppose each of us have at least observed and appreciated that to kneel is something maybe we've seen others do in prayer. Perhaps we've done it ourselves. Perhaps to fall down upon the knees. 
you notice that to kneel is to, by definition, position one's body in such a way that one or both knees are on the floor or on the ground before one. And yet we know that is an authorized posture in prayer because of some of the verses that we're now about to discuss. Why don't we begin with that first one in Mark 1 verse 40. There we have more or less a definition, an idea connected with what kneeling identifies. That statement on the slide, it would seem, would convey the sentiment of a verse like that one. To kneel is to carry the sense of submission, to carry the sense of abasement before a higher authority, or to be more specific, in humility to make a very sincere request of one who is greater than you. Isn't that the idea in prayer? God is far greater than we. The Bible testifies that on so many occasions, and yet it could well be that again you or I or others we've known have kneeled in prayer. I know that at least in public assembly, kneeling is a bit seldom. It's rather rare. But look at some of these ideas. In Mark 10 verse 17, we notice there that a rich young ruler came before Jesus, and as he made the request of the Master, he kneeled before him. Now, we frequently would say that that wasn't a prayer per se, but it indicated the sense of recognition that Jesus was the master teacher, and He wasn't. Jesus was the one before whom He sought answers. Again, kneeling indicates an idea of submission, an idea of humility, an idea of being abased before a greater authority. For that reason, notice what's next on the slide. The Word of God makes frequent mention of Bible individuals who, who kneeled in their prayers. Let's first look at some private prayers. Our mind rushes to the man we call Daniel. In Daniel, the sixth chapter, we encounter this person who had been faithful in terms of prayer, and yet the Persian government put in place a dictate that it was unlawful to pray to any authority or power besides the ruling king. Now Daniel rather quickly disobeyed that commandment because just as he always had three times a day with his face directed toward Jerusalem and with his window up, he prayed. And the text says, kneeling. Daniel, you see, it was his approach to prayer to kneel. Look at another example, this one from none other than Jesus our Lord. When he prayed to the Heavenly Father while he himself was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, we're told in Luke twenty-two forty-one, he kneeled. Can you just picture or at least imagine the nature of the kneeling of our Lord? When he prayed, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed this three earnest times. The text says again, he kneeled as he involved himself in, the, in prayer. It would not be at all wrong for you or I to kneel in prayer. Whether it be in our private prayers, look at another example in Acts 7 verse 60. Here as Stephen was about to meet his death. Stephen had preached in such power and such bravery. And those who heard him not only didn't like the message, they picked up rocks and were about to put him to death. And yet the text says that Stephen kneeled as he made that final petition that would utter from his lips. Two chapters later in Acts 9, verse number 40, 
You might recall with me that when Peter went, of course, to raise Dorcas, they had called him to come to that city wherein she had died. Peter put everybody out of the room except he and the corpse, and he went in, and the text says he kneeled as he prayed for her spirit to, to be revived. To say the very least, we could say that in all these private instances, kneeling was not only something that was done, but it met the approval of the God of heaven. What about these examples in a collective way? That is to say, individuals who were gathered more than one, they prayed together and on occasion they kneeled. The first example is Acts 20, verses 34 and following. There, particularly in verse 36, we notice that as Paul was assembled with the elders of the church in Ephesus, that group of men, they kneeled as they prayed. In the very next chapter, Acts 21, verses 4 and 5, here there was a group of Christians. They were assembled and gathered, and Paul was about to leave them to never see them again. They were troubled and bothered by that statement, and they all prayed as Paul departed from them. And the text says they kneeled. Perhaps it would be fair to say in light of those comments at least, if you or I in our element of humility and in our wish to correctly honor the person of God, it would be entirely right for us to kneel. In fact, if our elders were to ask us as a congregation, as much as would be physically physically possible, it would not be wrong for us to abase ourselves and kneel in prayer. Notice though one thing about the bottom of that. In Psalm 95 verse 6, we notice there that kneeling is even identified as a part of worship, a consideration, at least in the Old Testament, highlighting one's abasement, one's humility before God. Let's close that slide then like this. In all of these instances, it was important though to note that kneeling was not done just to gather the attention of people. It wasn't done simply to make one feel better. It had a purpose behind it. It had something it was wishing to accomplish, namely the attitude of abasement before the greatness of God and the recognition that all blessings are due to Him, that one is requesting and approaching one far greater. What about another attribute of posture in the Bible besides kneeling? What about the bowing of the head? It's safe to say that that's the most common posture we seemingly adopt. We bow our head, perhaps close our eyes, and in that way, we of course offer prayer to God. What about authority for this? First, let's note what bowing of the head seemingly conveys as it relates to the passages in which it occurs. At the top of that slide, in the places we're about to see it, it conveys an element in very strong humility coupled with a thankfulness and an unassuming spirit. By that I mean one isn't presumptuous in bringing one's own person before God because we are as filthy rags. But rather in the bowing of the head, we are able to humbly present our requests with thanksgiving in light of God who can give, and to do so in a way consistent with the understanding of an unassuming spirit, never presumptuous, never arrogant, and never overtly prideful. 
as far as some examples or at least places in the Bible where we encounter the bowing of the head in prayer. Let's begin here. One more time in private prayer. It may well be that when you and I pray privately, we simply bow our head. We have biblical authority. Look at some of these examples. In Genesis 24, verses 26 and following, we have there a statement from the Old Testament wherein the servant of Abraham was sent to find a wife for Isaac. As this gentleman proceeded on his way, he first prayed that God might bless him with the answer to his mission that a woman suitable and appropriate would be identified and that she would be able in willingness to go back and become the wife of Isaac. You notice in particular in verses 26 and 27, when Rebekah had appeared and she had answered the nature of the prayer that he had earlier prayed, this text says that that servant kneeled and prayed, offering thanksgiving to God for answering the prayer. Now, there is at least a patriarchal age example of this instance in which the bowing of the head was done. Later in that same chapter, in verse 48, that same servant identified, I bowed my head when he later gave report to what had happened. As he said all of that, look at the next example from the book of Exodus, 30, chapter 34, verses 8 and following. This time, it was Moses and the people of Israel who the text says that they bowed their head in light of the worship that was done, and in so doing they approached the God of heaven with an attribute that was unassuming. You might recall that was after the scene of the golden calf. They had already been convicted of their error, and they were motivated here with an unassuming spirit to attempt to do something about it. The bowing of the head. Why don't we look at these collective examples, however? In Exodus chapter 12, this time it was the scene of the Passover. God had given order that they were, of course, to take up a lamb and kill it appropriately and put the blood on the lentils and the doorposts. But you'll notice that as the people did those things, the text says they bowed their head and they again approached God in light of the events He had just revealed. A rather fascinating scene so far. We've seen kneeling and now the bowing of the head. Let's continue that study by observing this. Later in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have the days of Jehoshaphat, where one more time a very clear example in which the people bowed their head together with the king Jehoshaphat in an effort to approach God not only in prayer but in general worship. Maybe all of that would lead us to conclude that slide with these observations. There are other passages in which the bowing of the head is mentioned in connection to other postures. First of all, Psalm 95 verse 6, it's combined with kneeling. I suppose it'd be easily imaginable for a person to kneel as well as to bow the head. It's mentioned in Luke 18 13 in connection with standing. You and I are pretty comfortable with that. We stand and we also bow the head. May we also close that slide though by noting that the bowing of the head still, at least in the passages that we've seen it, has meaning behind it. It isn't done as an arbitrary activity to draw attention to oneself. 
It's done to display the unassuming spirit and to humbly approach God, not presumptuously, but to beseech His aid and to pray that He will accept our worship in the manner in which we present it. Are there other postures in the Bible besides these two? Let's look at a third one. I've entitled this one, Prostrate, for the reason you'll notice at the top. It identifies a posture that is described as lying very much on the floor with face downward. In other words, it is a posture that conveys the following sentence. Absolute and total dependency. Fully descriptive of the nature of absolute reliance upon God, the one greater than we. Prostrate. Now this one is probably a rather unusual one to us. Have you ever had such an earnestness and moment in prayer that you fell prostrate before God? Well, let's look at some Bible examples. Let's begin by at least observing these instances. Now there will be times as we look at these, we'll not overtly see a great deal of worship in every one of them. But at least the language will give us the indication of what is involved. First of all, in Ruth 2, verse number 10, Ruth fell prostrate right then and there before the characteristic person we call Boaz. You might remember that she had already by this point gleaned in his fields, and when he showed her favor and told her that she could come and glean in those fields, and that she would not be harassed, and she would not in fact be chased in any way, the text says that she immediately fell prostrate before him. Again, as an attitude not only of thankfulness but of dependency upon what he made available. She would be able to feed herself and Naomi in that way. Look at another example in 1 Samuel 25, 23. Here it was Abigail. She was married to a very interesting man named Nabal. I say interesting, she called him a fool. She said he was a churlish man who acted very unwisely. In fact, you may remember that he behaved himself in a way that would bring death to both himself and his family. However, his wife was far wiser than he was. She quickly prepared a gift and sent it to David. And when she brought it to him, she fell prostrate before him. Wishing to honor his position, to state her dependency upon his goodness in terms of favor. After all, David could have killed her and the entirety of Nabal's family, and he would have had the right to do it. But she preyed upon David's kindness. She prostratingly fell before him, hoping for the favor he would bestow. You'll notice then in the next line, we have in Joshua chapter 7, a clear-cut case of a man falling prostrate in prayer. The scene was an overwhelming one. The children of Israel had just enjoyed marvelous victory at the city of Jericho. And in that victory, they of course had done a great element in preceding what God had told them to do. They marched around that city just as God commanded. They shouted when He told them to do it. And the walls fell just as God promised they would. But in the next chapter, surprisingly, shockingly, unexpectedly, 
they were beaten. They were, in fact, resoundingly defeated by a little old town called Ai. Joshua was beside himself. God, how could this have happened? And he fell prostrate before God, wishing for God to reveal what it is that had taken place. Joshua was so overwhelmed and so utterly in need of God's answers and so dependent upon them, he fell prostrate before him. It was in that very sense that God said, Joshua, get up. There's a time and place for prayer, but there's a time and place to purge sin from the camp. It's time for the latter. Achan has sinned, purge sin out of the camp. When that happened, they again won. But we at least see this. Joshua fell prostrate in his prayer to God. As you and I close that slide, might we say this? As far then as I'm able to find, I don't find any New Testament case of a person in prostrate in worship. I would say in our private prayers, if we wish to be dependent upon God and to express that fully, and our physical capability would permit us to do that, there would be nothing wrong with it. But even then, may we always make sure that we're not just, just not doing it to be seen and not doing it for a show, but to ensure that there's meaning behind it. For everything we've seen so far indicates that these actions and posture must be described in that way. Our fourth example, the fourth kind of consideration. I put two of these together. Standing. Any examples in the Word of God of individuals who were standing as they offered prayer to God? We know that we frequently do that. It would be comforting to appreciate the authority and the Word of God for it. Let's first of all notice that even when standing is done, we have learned so far that there were those who, of course, they kneeled, and there were others who fell prostrate in various cases. Certainly to stand leads us to verses like this one. Would you revisit with me Nehemiah chapter 8? This Old Testament example is very telling in many ways. In the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, we read these verses. Verse number 6 says, And Ezra blessed the people, I'm sorry, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now so far, that's described many things. Their heads were bowed, their faces were directed toward the ground, it says they were lifting up their hands, but you may notice the previous verse additionally says this, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. The people were standing as the, as the description of verse number 6 took place. Now with that in mind, look at the next consideration. We have Jesus speaking about a scene that developed in Luke 18. We remember it well. We've already highlighted it this evening. On the one hand was a Pharisee. On the other was a publican. And as each one directed prayer to God, we have the explicit statement that standing was the posture that was in fact being presented. One of them, in fact, is he stood we're told that he would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. 
And in so doing, of course, we have Jesus directly affirming which one went down to his house justified. We then learn something about the possibility of standing in prayer. And you'll notice in Luke 18, 11, he even says that there is the standing with eyes uplifted. I know that you and I are rather accustomed to closing our eyes and bowing our head. He would not be wrong. If you and I wish to have our eyes open, looking up with yearning thoughts toward the one to whom we're praying. Isn't it interesting to reflect on some of these postures that the Word of God describes relative to prayer? As we close that slide, you'll notice at 1 Kings 8.22, Solomon prayed. There, we're told that he prayed standing with his arms uplifted. The occasion was the dedication of the temple. What a solemn event. And as he prayed that prayer, beseeching the blessing of God upon that building and upon all those who would worship faithfully there in the years that were to come, it was a rather momentous occasion. Whether it be kneeling, or even prostrate, or the bowing of the head, or now even standing, I would ask that we at least appreciate one by one, as we've looked at each of these, how intriguing they often have been. Let's close that slide and say this. In those places we've seen it, even standing, it seems, was never connected to an idle activity. It was never connected to merely doing it just to be doing it. It was an understanding of how honorable it is to be in the presence of God and that how appropriately respectful it would be to understand even our place to stand. One by one, as we've identified each of these, I suppose it brings us to one perhaps that's already come to your mind. We mentioned it in passing a moment ago. What about this one? The lifting up of the hands. What does the Bible seemingly identify about prayer posture, including this one? The places we've seen it take us back, first of all, to a consideration I would ask at least what meaning this might have. I've tried to convey, at least from the senses in which they've occurred, the meanings that have been involved in the other ones. If holding up hands in prayer is acceptable, what would that mean? What meaning would there be involved in it? I suppose I couldn't help but think a bit about Hallie, our granddaughter, when she, in fact, holds up her hands to Denise or myself, you know what she wants. She's anxious for us to pick her up or to help her accomplish something or to do something. This little child seemingly has learned early on that the raising of the hands is this means whereby it's not with palms closed, it's with palms open. Wanting something from her grandparents in this case. I'd at least suggest it seems like that sentiment would not be out of place. If you and I were to find the authorization for this, may we have palms open asking to receive something from God. Not that we're telling Him what to do, but that we are earnestly as His children desiring to receive something from Him because we know He can grant it. And we know He has promised in His Word that such things could take place. But let's go back to some of the verses in which this occurs. I've already mentioned Solomon. 
in 1 Kings 8, verses 22 and 54, Solomon prayed with his arms upraised. He did so beseeching the blessing of God on this building, the temple. For years it had been under construction, and in the money of that day, literally millions of dollars had been poured into its building. Ornate, extravagant, exquisite, and as all of that was done, now Solomon begs the great blessing of God upon it. And as he stood before the people so that they could witness and hear that prayer, his arms were upraised, begging God to bless that structure in all the ways consistent with His will. That's a rather moving moment, it would seem to me. But let's look at another example. This time, in Nehemiah 8.6, we just read that one. As Ezra officiated over this reading of the book of the law, we remember that not only were the people standing, but their arms were raised. They were one more time moved by the truth that Ezra had read and the fact that they were beseeching God's blessing upon the reestablishment of the wall around Jerusalem. After all, that wall had just been completed and they wanted their city again blessed. A rather amazing thing to imagine, isn't it? In Psalm 28, verse number 6, there is something there said about the significance of their lifting up of the hands. Let's note the language as it appears in that passage. Psalm 28. The reading is very brief, only this. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. I'm sorry, that's Psalm 27. I need Psalm 28. I knew that didn't sound quite right. Psalm 28. Hear the voice of my supplications. When I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands toward thy holy oracle. And the last few words of that verse, very significant. What is the holy oracle? What is it that David wished to convey by that sentiment? He referred, you see, to the nature of connection to God's truth. The oracle was the means whereby the high priest and others would receive the truth and the message from God. You see, the idea behind that then, at least in principle, helps us see today that if we would wish to hold up the hands, we should understand that it must have behind it a greater sense than just the physical posture. It is an approach to God's holy oracle. And in so doing, it must have something to say about you and about me. It may well be that the next matter will, I think, make clear that emphasis. Psalm 63 this time it's verse number 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Now when David made that statement... If you begin reading from the first part of the chapter, you discover that he was in a circumstance or a position in which he was greatly moved to approach into God. It's as though his spirit was beside himself. 
He longed to be where God was. He longed to be with God, to be associated with Him. And in that connection, he could say, I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. In the name of God. Look at another one. In Psalm 119, verse 48. Far later in the Psalter, we find this rather interesting statement. My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. Now there you'll notice the lifting up of the hands was directed to the Bible, to the Word of God. Can you imagine a person lifting up his or her hands in light of this book being before them? David there highlighted that that was something that he not only appreciated as reasonable, but something that he seemingly enjoyed doing. Look at another one in Lamentations 3.41. This time the setting is very different, but the sense is very telling. Lamentations 3, verse number 41. Let us lift up our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. When Jeremiah penned that, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And the people were, of course, winding their way down into captivity. And here he says, let us lift up our hands with our hearts unto God in heaven. In so doing, he highlighted the attitude, the perspective of those doing this, the understanding that was to be appreciated behind it. For that reason, notice the bottom part of that slide. The lesson text that Brother Vestal read earlier was in 1 Timothy chapter 2. In verse number 8, a very well-known passage. It, of course, is in the heart of a description of New Testament worship. And it now begs us to appreciate this. I will therefore that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I suspect that you or I have never seen a man lead prayer in this assembly with arms like this. For one thing, our heads are bowed. And another thing, the men, when they lead prayer, just don't do that. Does this verse command that they must? Does this verse demand then that men literally, as they lead prayer in a public assembly, must lift up their hands? From what we've just seen in the Old Testament, the sense behind that was far more descriptive of the heart and godliness of the man leading the prayer, like David in Psalm 63, like the consideration of what was referenced in Psalm 119. You'll notice this verse goes on to identify lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. It should be our conviction that any man leading the public prayers ought to have a life consistent with the Word of God, consistent without wrath and doubting, consistent with that which he professes by virtue of the prayer he's leading. After all, if he's going to lead us in prayer, he should be leading us to approach unto God. And if his prayers aren't heard due to a life of sin, due to a life of questionable morals, due to a life of otherwise unsuitable behavior, then he has no business leading the prayer. We would do better to find another man who would be able to figuratively lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 
these postures in prayer that we have studied so far tonight, close that slide and also close our lesson. Because the conclusion would fairly develop a very few very quick remarks. In light of all these postures we've seen, what could be some things that we could easily say? First of all, in not a single instance did we find individuals praying, engaging in any posture in which they stimulated themselves. Prayer never has been to bring us the glory. Never has been. And therefore, whether it was kneeling, bowing the head, falling prostrate, standing, or the others we've described, the meaning behind it was always with an appropriate approach in the light of the matters under discussion to beseech God. And even when the hands were raised, there was never any swaying. That was not mentioned either in English or Hebrew. Furthermore, consider this. There's no reference in any of them to a feeling that's conveyed into the manner of the person. Not one time. Not one example of that did we find. There's no doubt that we will be emotional as we approach God. He's that great and we are not. And we are dependent upon Him, but never must we allow emotion to lead us in worship, including prayer, to do what He has not authorized us to do. I would encourage us to think about passages such as 1 Kings 18. When they became emotional, what did they do? Was it good? Oh, we know that they had a number of things that were wrong. But when Elijah said, I tell you what, let's have a contest. You call upon Baal, and I'll call upon the God of heaven. And weren't they emotional? They jumped and screamed and hollered and cut themselves and blood was gushing everywhere and there was never an answer. Emotion, you see, was not the critical connection. But when Elijah humbly prayed to God that he'd send fire, not only did it come, it lapped up the sacrifice, it lapped up the water, and it even lapped up the wood. Our God answered in faithfulness to the consideration and the propriety of the way it was addressed. When people today jump and scream and holler and think the Spirit's come upon them, the Bible doesn't endorse this. And when you and I appreciate point number three, we do find religion today that is properly considerative emotion, but look at when it comes. Do you remember an Ethiopian eunuch who was riding along in a chariot? He was reading from texts that he didn't understand. And when Philip joined himself to the chariot, do you remember what he asked? If I may paraphrase, do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch said, how could I except some man guide me? Here was a man who was wanting to understand. And when they came to where water was, he said, here's water. What hinders me to be baptized? And he and Philip went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And then in verses 38 and 39, we see the emotion that man went on his way rejoicing. Why? He hadn't been overcome by doing things inappropriate, but rather the emotion of the moment engulfed him as he obeyed the gospel and as he humbly did what God endorsed him to do. And that's all we seek for today. And we close that slide with one final thought. 
Romans 12, verse number 2. You may think that prayer isn't in that verse, but I would think we might want to revisit that. The first two verses of Romans 12 read like this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I believe we'd readily agree that at least the sentiment there should describe every aspect of our modern-day service to God. But the word reasonable, that's the way the King James presented it, but that word reasonable literally is logikos in Greek. That's the word from which we get our English word logic. Logic. Our mind must be attuned to what this book says, not emotionally driven. Emotion will come after we obey. It'll be in light of our obedience. Emotion isn't what drives our worship. Our logikos is what drives it. As we understand what the Bible says, and we worship in song, in prayer, in the Lord's Supper, in giving, and in our study of the Word of God, seeking to understand what God has revealed. And as we logikos our response to it, it will bring a sense of peace, the emotion that God would permit, and that's what we thrillingly wish to offer Him. In conclusion to this lesson, the posture in prayer, we've looked at several examples, both Old and New Testament, and we have found authorization for a number of things. May we in wisdom recognize the meaning behind all of them and never allow even our prayer to be something that's just a habit. I hope even at this point when we bow our head in prayer, we'll remember that we're doing this in an unassuming sense of honoring the God that we're approaching. Just bowing the head is not just a habit, just as these other particular activities either. Thanks be unto God for His Word that tells us things like these. And tonight, as we each analyze our lives, if there's anyone here who is not inside the wonderful confines of God's ark of safety, faithfulness in the church, please take care of that this evening. Jesus wants to reinstate you to a position of faithfulness. He pleads with you. He lets you make the final decision. He lets all of us do that. And tonight, if we could help anybody in any way, we want you to know that we're here to assist in whatever way we might, and to do so while together we stand and while we sing.